This is the Future of HR podcast, episode 12. They are unapologetically compassionate. They don't believe and they don't lead in a way that would suggest they believe that there is a conflict between being kind and warm and being strong. I think that is such a superpower. They go into new spaces and they lead differently. They are willing to stand alone and make space to to push on paradigm. And then the final thing I would say is they are unapologetic about leading their own way. How can you lead with purpose and passion? What characteristics define the best leaders? Hi, I'm your host, JP Elliott, and this is the Future of HR podcast, the only podcast whose mission is to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. On each episode, I interview successful HR executives and thought leaders who are reimagining, rethinking, and leading our field into the future. During our candid conversations, you will learn about their career journeys, their lessons learned along the way, and their insights on how to take our field, and most importantly, your career to the next level. Today, my guest is Ann Gotti, VP Global Talent Management at Bumble Inc., the high-growth parent company of Bumble, Badu, and Fruits. In 2021, Bumble and Badu apps ranked among the top five grossing iOS lifestyle apps in 76 and 110 countries, respectively. Joining less than a year after the company's IPO, Anne and her global team are responsible for building out the organization's talent strategies and practices. Prior to joining Bumble, Anne spent six years at Ecolab, where she led efforts to build the company's first employer brand strategy, global diversity, equity, and inclusion practice, and succession planning capabilities. Anne started a career at General Mills, where she worked for 14 years in a variety of business partner and talent management specialist roles. In addition, Anne is also a proud member of Marshall Goldsmith's 100 Coaches, an exclusive worldwide community of coaches and leadership experts. A deep expert in talent organizational effectiveness, Anne is known for bringing business-grounded, insight-driven, and deeply practical solutions to her clients. She's earned a reputation for leading significant transformation, building trust, and inspiring leaders and teams to perform at their best. In my conversation today, Anne and I will discuss the four capabilities that differentiate the best talent management leaders, why it's important to align your career decisions with your values, what makes Bumble's culture different than anywhere else she's ever worked, and the female leaders she admires the most and why. Anne, welcome to the Future of HR. How are you? Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start talking a little bit about while you're a talent leader today, obviously the vice president of global talent management for Bumble, you weren't always in talent. In fact, you spent the first nine years of your career in other HR roles at General Mills. And I'm curious, what did you learn from those early experiences and how have they helped you in your role today? Yeah. So I would start by saying I wouldn't do it any other way. I am incredibly grateful to have started my career as a generalist and in business partner roles. And I often say, in my opinion, the best generalists have been specialists and the best specialists have been generalists. I think there is sometimes this pervasive HR versus HR thing that can happen across the different disciplines of our of our profession. And I think so often it's because we haven't walked a mile in the other's shoes. And so I believe that where I am effective as a talent leader, it is in part because I had these really grounding and broadening experiences early on. 
I started in manufacturing actually. And I don't know that as many people are starting their careers that way anymore, but I am incredibly, incredibly indebted to those experiences for a number of reasons. I think it is such an incredible way to learn the business quickly. I started in manufacturing facilities, working on shop floors, and really understanding our business model at a very elemental level and how we produced, how we made money, how we shipped product around the world, how we affected our consumers. And so getting a sense of corporate strategy to shelf, working in a consumer products environment, starting in manufacturing to me was the very best way to do that. But when you think about manufacturing, like you said, it's something you can touch, feel, and honestly, the workforce is a little bit different too. How did that help shape your leadership style working with the manufacturing environment? I think it made a meaningful impact on my leadership style. You mentioned something really important. The worker profile is different, but the number and volume of workers that you are around in any given day is also significantly different. The spans in a first line manager in a, in a manufacturing facility are a lot different from a first line manager in the software developing uh, developer department. And so working with huge teams and leaders often fairly early in their career who are managing big teams of people across three shifts, seven days a week, and the demands of that and the way that you get to understand motivation at work, communication at work, alignment at work, they're, they're very tangible and illustrative examples that frankly, I see play to life in, in different ways in conference room and boardrooms, you know, 20 years later, the humanity of our, of our behaviors at work is pervasive across all job types and getting kind of a front row seat to what those look like in a manufacturing environment was incredibly helpful to me um, because it's, um, you just get such a broad range of the kinds of conflicts and the kinds of problems that you get to solve. But I think it's so important for early in your career as a generalist or an HR to be working with people. And of course, we're in a people business and please never say that as an answer in an interview for anybody listening right now. <laughs> However, you know, a lot of times we're like, well, we want to find out what people think. Well, let's go do an engagement survey. If you're in a manufacturing environment or in a frontline workforce environment, they're going to tell you. There's no need for an engagement survey, right? And that real-time feedback really helps you grow and learn. And so it sounds like you're encouraging people, hey, you know, I, I you want to work from home, but working with people in a manufacturing facility, making something can be really beneficial. I can tell you for me, there would be nothing I would trade those experiences for. I learned so much about who I am and so much about what it means to do this work well, if ultimately what you're trying to do is fuel performance and impact how people feel about their work, which ultimately I think in meaningful ways impacts how they feel about their lives. I can't imagine a better learning ground than a manufacturing environment. There's just, there's, it's so rich. So it's a learning rich environment to be sure. And I'm grateful for the time. You went from kind of generalist roles after about nine years or so, and you switched into a manager of talent management, which like you talked about in the beginning, going from a generalist role to a specialist, but how did that opportunity come about for you? And what advice do you have for someone who's making that switch or wants to make a similar pivot? So I'd say a couple of things. So I started in manufacturing, as I mentioned, um, exhaustively probably, and then and then moved into HR business partner roles, actually in commercial functions. So I supported marketing and sort of our business unit organizations at General Mills, 
for a time and then moved into both our retail, consumer facing, as well as our B2B um, sales organizations. And so I, to your point earlier, had almost a decade of working in HR business partner roles and I loved it. But what I loved most about the work was helping leaders and teams perform at their best and feel their best at work. And my children were born when I was in a role for that B2B sales organization that I told you about. And I was in a, a business partner role and I really, really loved it. And my, my boys were actually born really prematurely. I have twins. They're fine. They're 12 now and they're perfectly healthy. But at the time, it was a little bit precarious for us. And my husband was on the road. He worked for a consultancy at the time. He was gone four days a week. We didn't have family around. I had babies arrive nine weeks early who were you know, in the hospital for quite some time and needed pretty dedicated care for several months afterwards. And so I had this real um, decision to make, frankly, and, and a decision that I was privileged to be able to make. My husband was employed and we could afford for me to not work for a while if that's what my family required. And so I don't take that lightly, especially having grown up in a single parent household where my mother didn't have those kinds of choices. Uh, And so we thought about it a lot. We talked about it a lot as a family. And one of the things that I came to as a working mom, a new mom, was I wanted my children, my boys, to know their mother, not only by her presence, by spending quality time with them, being around them, but also by her example. And I love my work. I love helping leaders and teams perform. And I love helping leaders and teams feel great about their work and all that it does for our identity and sense of contribution. So I knew I wanted to get back. But I wanted to be choosy about the kinds of work that I did. And I was very lucky that as a business partner, I had taken the time to sort of major, if you will, in talent. So I was always the person that sort of raised my hand and said, I'll do that, you know, or redesign, or I'd like to be in charge of performance management, or let me take the talent review planning for that, or can I help build the competency models for these functions, or whatever it was. It was the work I loved, probably always, and it was the work I moved into um, even informally throughout my business partner roles. So I had built a bit of a skill set and was very lucky having, you know, nine years of tenure at the at the company that I was able to kind of negotiate um, moving into a talent management role in one of our businesses and start to hone my craft as a talent leader. And it's been a wonderful journey ever since. Well, first, I'm glad that your boys are great. And I really appreciate you sharing that. It sounds like you had this passion for talent and were able to pull that off because of your track record and credibility, but your also desire to learn. So what other tips would you have for someone who's like, I really wanted to get into talent or another specialty area in HR, but I don't have that degree and I'm not doing that job today? So it's interesting. I um, appreciate this question very much. I recently reread, I'm a bit of a slow learner on this, so I've read this book more than once. But have you ever read the book, The Advice Trap by Michael Bungay-Steiner? I have. Yes. It's such a good book. And and I, he talks about the advice monster and I am like a walking advice monster, despite like many, many efforts to rehabilitate. I really struggle with over dispensing advice. And so I can offer a few things, but here's what I would, would do maybe instead. I think I would have people who think they want to go into talent management, get really clear on what it is, why they want to do that, what they think the work is, what it will require of them. And then are they willing to do that? You know, including what trade-offs it might come with. 
And then sit with that for a period of time and think about what is driving that transition and does it feel compelling enough to gate the complexities or the trade-offs that will inevitably accompany a pivot like that. What I can do though, that I don't think is advice. So I totally think that I'm like still on the upside of this this (sighs) advice monster situation is talk about the requirements. Like I think that the best talent management leaders are good at a few things. I don't think you can be good at this work if you're not good at these things. I think that they are voracious learners. Our field is steeped in science and data and people who find that off-putting or tend to want to lead more on gut or or activate work and really bring it to life, but maybe don't enjoy kind of the, um, the hard work of, which by the way, activating is also hard work, but the sort of grindy work of, of building something that's rooted in science, we've got the technology working right, et cetera. They won't actually really like the work at all. They've got to be someone who's willing to sort of continue to learn. The, the other skills I think are really important are those of a diagnostician. So much of the work that we do is about sensing what's going on in the organization and finding the simplest way to solve those problems. Not necessarily coming home from a conference and saying, the cool companies are all doing this. So we should all do this too. It's really understanding what is fit for purpose here and what are the simplest ways that I can enact that solution in a way to drive progress. I also think that the people who are successful in this role are very comfortable standing alone when they need to, meaning they appreciate that sometimes when they're leading change, they're they're introducing things that are unfamiliar and perhaps uncomfortable for people. Concepts such as how to differentiate or how to navigate the level of transparency around performance and potential that's right for your organization. These are inherently uncomfortable things to lead. And so having grit as well as resiliency to navigate when people really are reluctant, and, and they often are initially, especially to kind of step into some of those practices. That's a really good list of requirements and things that really are important in this role. And I, I love the last point about, you know, really the courage to push some difficult ideas and difficult conversations. And I might add that I think you have some, you have to have finesse. There has to be an emotional intelligence of how do we do that and push hard enough that the organization's willing to bend but not break? Yes. Because there are many of us in this role or in HR that have pushed so hard that you get rejected, right? It's like, hey, that's too far. Mm-hmm. We're not ready for that. Or you don't read the room, as they say. And so it's so critical to have that skill, but that takes time as you develop, right? And have the opportunity to do it. I th- I couldn't agree with you more. And it's it's so interesting. I think I think sometimes if we do the diagnosis work right, which isn't just about going into a room by yourself and thinking big thoughts, right? Like I have a bit of data and I know enough to be dangerous and here's what we should do. You know, diagnosis when it's done well, I mean, I think about a physician, you know, diagnosing a patient, they're asking a lot of questions and they're listening to the patient's responses. And so when we're diagnosing work, requirements, we're essentially listening to what unmet needs exist in the organization. So to your point on finesse, like there's so much in saying, I think I heard you say you need this. Did I get that right? Okay. Well, if that's what we're trying to do, here are a couple of ways that we can go about it, each of which have, you know, maybe some pros and cons, all of which are going to require some different behaviors. How do we feel about that? There's, I think the finesse is not only in the diagnosis 
or the pushing to your excellent point, the right amount of finesse. I love the way you said that, but also in the optionality, you know, there's more than one way to get somewhere. And so having the adaptiveness in your solution development to meet people where they are so that sure, we can make them uncomfortable if it's for the right reasons, but not unproductive, you know? I mean, there is a point after which change for its own sake is so wasteful. I love the optionality is a huge piece of this. And I think the the other piece, to be great in talent or a specialist this role, especially when working with the business or even HR partners, let's be honest, you don't make the final calls. So you have to be okay to say, there's five different ways to do it. And if you pick the third way, I'm okay with it too. I think where we get in trouble is we're like, it has to be this one way or we can't see a secondary approach or we can't say yes and and bring other people's points of view into our ideas. So Mm -hmm. you have to want to co-create to be in this field and and like it and be good at it. I think that's such an excellent point. I couldn't agree more. None of us were born talent management leaders or experts (laughs) in our field. I mean, some of us went to get advanced degrees, right? But how did you develop and make yourself a subject matter expert over that time frame? Yeah. So very brief, funny story. I actually decided when I was eight years old that I wanted to be an HR professional, which is hilarious because I think most people when they're eight want to be like an astronaut or a race car driver, but not, not me. I had, I had other plans. So one day we can talk about that. If well, you like. wait, let's, but, I'm um, curious though. So wait, did you have a role model of an HR business partner in your life with someone in your family also in HR? <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing that logical. So um, that would that would make more sense than than what my actual answer is. I of course did not know what HR was as a as a as a term. I, that wasn't part of my eight year old vocabulary. But here's what I did know: my mother, as I mentioned very briefly a moment ago, was a single parent, and she was uneducated and worked a lot of jobs. Never really built a career, and she didn't always like her jobs. In fact, some of them were downright awful for her. And I remember how she would come home if she had a great day at work or if she had a really bad day at work. And I couldn't totally understand enough about the work environment as a small child, of course. But what I was clear about was that work made a really big difference in who you've got to be as a grown up, how you felt about your identity, how you felt about relationships, both inside and outside of your organization, and ultimately how you how you lived, right? And so when I was eight, I decided I would work to make work better. That was my plan. I would work to make work better. Do you have accomplished making work work better and hope your mom knows and is proud of you for what you've done. It's terrific. That's a great story. I want to be a peacock or a doctor when I was four. (laughs) So I am am neither, but I do a PhD, which is sort of makes you a doctor-ish. I don't know. Right. I love that you want to be an HR manager. My kids are like, no, thanks, dad. I don't know what I don't want to do what you do. <laughs> you know, uh, let's talk about, you recently have joined Bumble and you know, mm-hmm. Bumble's an incredible company, an incredible story. Uh, I'd love you to tell us more about why you decided to join the company and what it's like to work there so far. So I could talk about this all day because the decision to join Bumble was a really fun and easy decision for me to make. Uh, It was very difficult to leave the organization I was at before because I loved my time there and I had a great nearly six-year run at at the organization and I learned a ton and I was blessed by the generosity of exceptional leaders throughout my time. So leaving them, really hard. Joining Bumble, really easy. And and it was easy because, you know, the last several years have taught us so much about equity, really writ large, and social justice and the importance of mental 
and emotional wellness and how we think about safety and fairness in our in our communities both here in the US and globally and I live in Minneapolis and so certainly the events of 2020 are very personal and close to home for me my last company I think has done remarkable work around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm incredibly proud of the journey that they have been on and that they continue to be on. What's what's distinct about Bumble is that diversity, equity, and inclusion is the center of the business model. The center of Bumble's purpose is really rooted in respect and equity and trust and safety. And all of these things that I think are so central to my values as as a woman And so joining the organization and being part of this mission, the idea that we can help make relationships healthy and respectful and equitable and and kind of further what kind connections look like across the planet is incredibly, incredibly inspiring. And then the second thing I would say is that I am a woman who was reared by women. I was raised by my mother and my aunt and my grandmother, and I am most comfortable in environments with women. I've always had women as mentors and leaders and guides and consider myself very at home in a, in a room of women. So the opportunity to work in that kind of environment was sort of irresistible to me. Of course, you know, God is fun and he has a great sense of humor. So I now live with my husband, my two sons and my male dog. <laughs> so there is balance to be sure. And I love all of them too. <laughs> right. What I think is great about Bumble is the mission is so clear, but it's also great business, right? And I think you can actually marry those both up. And I personally do think, and I'm very biased towards women, female leaders, because I've been in HR. And so I have been impacted and had, you know, amazing women leaders and, and role models, mentors for my career. But let's talk more about their executive team, because what's really unique about Bumble's executive team is that at least my most recent count, which could change, is that seven out of 12 are females. And so the question is, Anne, for you, is it is the company managed differently than other companies that maybe don't have a majority female executive team? This is such a great question. And here's what I can tell you. We have entirely different conversations than I've ever been a part of at work. And the way decisions are made feels different than it has at other organizations. And the way that whole whole people are considered as we make decisions and as we institute policy and as we navigate, you know, all the things that any company has to navigate, priorities, resource allocation, difficult decisions, et cetera. Those all feel different. What I can't discern is how much of that is true because we have so many incredible women that are leading or because I'm at Bumble and this is just part of our culture regardless of gender. And because what I would say is that the sort of archetypical female leadership attributes that we read about, that we know about that, you know, whether it's McKinsey or other sources have sort of said, here are some discerning differences between the way men and women lead. I can tell you that it feels like that. It feels collaborative, respectful, compassionate, authentic, vulnerable, it feels, um, it feels like you can make a mistake. You can admit when you don't know something, you can ask for help, you can expect support and you can be really cared for in, in all of the facets of, of who you are both in and outside of work. That is, that is true at Bumble. Um, I can't tell yet if it's correlation or causation, but I have a, I have a hunch that it's probably 
it's probably at least a little bit of causation for sure. Well, it sounds like an incredible place to work and you found a place that just resonates with you is who you are and your mission. But let's talk a little bit more about it. And I know it's a challenging topic because when you start to debate, are women better leaders than men? People get defensive and maybe better is not the right word, but there are, to your point, some stereotypical things that come across. And I guess, what's your point of view on the big debate on this? Yeah, I think there are behaviors that have been socialized to be more female that are very effective in today's work environments. And I think because some of those behaviors have been socialized to be female, more women have those behaviors and those skills. And so I don't think that means that men can't also acquire them. I think it sometimes means men haven't been bridged or socialized to acquire them and they feel more foreign and they feel perhaps less less like leadership to men. I would be very interested in your opinion on this. But to me, when I think about what we're talking about in today's leadership requirements, it is things that are gender agnostic. You know, I think all genders can be more compassionate, can ask for help, can admit when they've made a mistake, can lead collaboratively. Those are not those are not owned by women. Those belong to humans. And it's just a matter of creating the environment for all leaders to express them. I was just on the phone with Sharon Melnick earlier today. I don't know if you know her work. She just recently dropped her latest book. She's an incredible business psychologist. And she does a lot of work around women in power. And what she said to me earlier today was when women are in their power, they elevate and lift everyone around them. And it's this idea, she doesn't mean power in sort of an authoritarian traditional sense. She means when they are sort of at their best and fully, um, fully unleashed to lead to the fullest capability that they have, they create this, this elevating effect for everyone around them because of some of the things that you're talking about. And so I think that there is remarkable diversity in leadership skills and styles across genders and that the more diversity you can bring into a room, so long as you know how to really leverage and reveal that, the better for sure. Yeah. Let's go a bit deeper on this topic and just, you know, curious about, you know, as a next gen HR leader, female, you know, if you kind of think back, I know it's been a little while, but you know, what would you say are some things you advice and tips you give them in terms of trying to continue to accelerate your career and fast track your career? I think the first thing is early in your career, and I didn't always get this right. You have everything to learn and nothing to prove. I think so many times early career talent come in and they just, they want to show you how good they are. I did. I was, I was all about like proving my value <laughs> to the dismay probably of everyone who was stuck working around me. I just, I wanted so much to give and to make a difference. And I think that can be a trap because so much of the power that we hold as developing executives is in our ability to bring out others, not in making sure everyone sees us, right? I didn't learn that as quickly as I could have. And I am grateful to be more aware of it today. It doesn't mean I get it right all the time. I think that that would be important, you know, really spending time kind of thinking through how am I taking the time every day to learn and get better, improve, and how am I making sure that I'm not spending my time proving who I already am and what I already deliver. It's not a knock on the importance of self-promotion or in being deliberate. And it's actually not at all. It's this idea that humility and openness and curiosity are really important. And they're not always in long supply. 
What female leaders do you admire and why? There's probably many. (laughs) There's so many. But what I would say is that all of the leaders that I admire, I, I sort of pulled back and said, what is it about these women that I so admire? And they all hold a few things in common that you've probably heard me talk about. They are compassionate. They are unapologetically compassionate. They don't believe and they don't lead in a way that would suggest they believe that there is a conflict between being kind and warm and being strong. I think that is such a superpower. And I love and admire and respect women who can do that in ways that create the potential for others around them to do that as well. They go into new spaces and they lead differently. They are willing to stand alone and make space to to push on paradigms. You know, I think about Brene Brown, who pushed on the idea of vulnerability as a workplace requirement for things like innovation and growth and made a lot of people deeply uncomfortable in doing so, but was so convicted and so good at modeling that in her own work that, you know, there's a following there that is staggering. I think about Whitney Wolf Hurd, who founded Bumble, and she did the same thing. You know, she went into a new space and said, we can do better and I'm going to show the world how that looks. And there's a, there's a courage that I just love about, about that. And then the final thing I would say is they are unapologetic about leading their own way, even if it's unpopular. And even if people who have seen more, done more, quote unquote, know more are telling them they're crazy. (laughs) I think about Jacinda Ardern out of New Zealand, who has led through the pandemic most recently in very unusual ways vis-a-vis the rest of the world and has seen remarkable progress and impact in her country. I think about the way that she's supported working parents. There are so many things that she's done that have said, I'm going to do this my way. Not because I think I know it all, but because the other ways haven't worked. So we're going to try something different. And I love that. I love that list. And I think one of the things you talked through there is this paradox of standing alone, but bringing people together. Right. And And I think you're right. I think the best female leaders are able to do that, whether it's being compassionate, but yet still making tough business decisions. And that's what great leadership is, whether you're a man or a woman. And- Last question for you. What is one word or phrase that you believe will define the future of HR over the next five to 10 years? I think it's impact. I think that if we look at the last, even just 250 years of work, the pace of industrial revolutions, the cycle time for what's relevant and necessary in the workplace or in work environments more broadly, it's changing so fast. And we have perhaps not historically had the right tool set or skill set to meet those changes as easily and as effectively as we could. I think the science, the technology, the profession, and the pace of change are coming together in ways that are really interesting. It's a fun and dynamic time to be in our field. And I don't think we've ever had an opportunity to make a bigger impact than we will in the next five to 10 years. Future of HR is all about impact. And thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Future of HR podcast. Thanks again to Anne for sharing her insights on leadership, Bumble's culture, and talent management. As always, you can go to futureofhr.com to view all of our past episodes 
and learn more about our mission to inspire the next generation of HR leaders. We'll be back next week with John Foster, former CHRO for Hulu and IDEO and founder of Gamut Labs. In our conversation, John and I will discuss why HR leaders need to think like architects, the four elements of a human-centered organization, and why he believes wellness is the foundation for human performance. Thanks again for listening to the future of HR and being part of our community.